you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, go ahead and open them to 1 John. And we're going to be in chapter 3, verses 11 through 24. 1 John 3, 11 through 24. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, there are Bibles in the, the racks below your chairs. Feel free to grab that and take it home with you. That's yours to keep. Uh, we would love for you to take it. And we're going to be in 1 John 3, 11 through 24. That's towards the back of, of the Black Bibles under the pews. 1 John 3, 11 through 24. And the title of this sermon is The Difference Between Cain and Christ. Well, the wise prophets, the Beatles, once sang, Love, love, love. Love, love, love. Love, love, love. There's nothing you can do that can't be done. There's nothing you can sing that can't be sung. There's nothing you can say, but you can learn how to play the game. It's easy. All you need is love. All you need is love. All you need is love. Love. Love is all you need. Sounds great. Even feels great, doesn't it? All you need is love. But unfortunately, the Beatles, along with most in our current culture, don't define what love is. Thankfully, Scripture not only calls us to love, but gives us a crystal clear picture, a roadmap, so to speak, of what love is and what love does. Don't forget that the book of 1 John repetitively, over and over and over again, gives us three litmus tests to discern the validity of our Christian confession. Number one, the doctrinal test. Do we believe in the Jesus of the Bible? Doctrinal test. Second, the moral test. Do we obey God's good and gracious commands? And then third, the social test. Do we love? Do we love? Today, we're back to the social test. And before we dive in, I just want to briefly comment on the beauty of 1 John as a letter. As I've been preaching through this book, I initially, full transparency, I initially thought, how am I going to do this? Because John is so repetitive How will I avoid just preaching the same sermon multiple times in this series? But here's the deal that I and we congregationally need to understand. John was fully inspired by the Holy Spirit as he wrote this letter. The Holy Spirit, through the pen of the Apostle John, knew that I and we needed the repetition. If you're into sports... How do you get good at something? Repetition. Doing it over and over and over again. Or in education. I love every day getting to hear Mrs. Clayton and Mrs. Nelson's students through my wall in my office. They're learning important truths through repetition. A couple of weeks ago, Cruz, our oldest son, he was in our kitchen reciting Romans chapter 8 from memory. And so I asked him, how in the world did you know, do you know that? 
And he said, Deb, we recite it every morning at the start of the day. Repetition. That's what John is doing for us. Over and over and over again, reminding us of these core truths. Uh, I need that this morning. So let's dive into the text. Look with me in your Bibles at 1 John 3, 11 through 24. This, like the last section of 1 John, is a one-point sermon with several sub-points. So, if you take away nothing else, the main point of this sermon is this. And it's found right at the beginning in verse 11. He says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. This is nothing new, he said. You've heard this from the beginning. Nothing innovative or novel about this. Love one another. That's the core or main point of this section of text and this sermon. Now, because John is better than the Beatles, even though I love the Beatles, but John is better because he doesn't just tell us to love. He gives clarity to what he means. So, under the banner of love one another, our text is going to have three points today. Point one, contrast. Point two, the cross. And point three, confidence. So, uh, to define love, John's first going to show us the opposite of love. Uh, sometimes, to really understand something, we need to see what it's not. So, we'll start with point one. And in the first two points, John's going to give us an example, a command, and an application. An example, a command, and an application. So point one, verses 12 through 15. Look with me at verse 12. He says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. So Cain is our example or our anti-example, in a negative or a contrasting sense. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, who's Cain? Well, in the very beginning of the storyline of the Bible, Adam and Eve had two sons, one named Cain and one named Abel. Uh, the story is found in Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. And it says this, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. In its most basic sense, Abel obeyed God and did what God asked him to do. Cain didn't. God had regard for Abel and his offering, 
but not for Cain. Now, back to our, our text in 1 John, through that lens. What does John say? Verse 12, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Remember what John said in verse 10 just before this. He said, we know who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. How do we know that? Well, by observing their fruit. Do they obey God's commands? And do they love their brother? Based on what we just read about Cain, whose child is he? John spells it out for us, doesn't he? Cain was of the evil one. What was his fruit? Murder. And what was his motive? That his brother was righteous before God, and he wasn't. Now, some of you may be sitting there and thinking, finally, finally, John has kind of been gut-punching me the last several weeks, convicting me about sin in my life. This week, I'm off the hook. All I have to do is not murder. That's easy. Not so fast. What does Jesus teach us in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Verse 22. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Friends, it's possible to murder without ever picking up a weapon. Jesus tells us that our actions come out of our hearts. Do you see how this works? Cain sees righteousness in his brother. He hates it. He hates him. He wishes that Abel wasn't there. Wishes that he didn't exist. Hate is deeply embedded in his heart, and then it spills out into action. He murders his brother, displaying that he was of the evil one, a child of the devil, bearing the family resemblance, like we talked about a couple weeks ago. So, Cain is our counterexample. Then, John gives us a command. Look at verse 13. He says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. This seems kind of out of left field, doesn't it? But it's not. Follow John's argument here. Cain hated his brother. Why? Because his brother was righteous. He's a child of God. Cain on the other hand, is of the world, a child of the devil. The world hates Christians the same way Cain hated Abel. I want to remind us that the world here, we've seen it over and over and over again, when John uses this word, the world, he means a worldview that is anti-God and in rebellion against him and everything that he is. So, if you're a Christian, you will be hated by the world because you're able-like, and they are Cain-like. That's John's point. 
He's saying, don't be surprised by this. Quick caveat here. As Christians, we're not going around looking to be hated. I want to be really clear here. We're not going around looking to be hated. And John isn't giving anyone a free pass to be a jerk. If your neighbor hates you because you're a jerk, that's not a badge of honor. What John's saying is, there's going to be times when the world hates you simply for living out the Christian life, for holding to Christian convictions, for loving God, for obeying God's commands. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but it's so easy to have the mindset of, can't I just hold to my Christian convictions and be liked? Or at best, just be left alone? Not if you're walking in the footsteps of Jesus. That's what John's saying. They hated him, and they'll hate you. So, that's the command. Don't be surprised by the world's hate. And, at the same time, know that God is with you. He won't give you more than you can handle. He'll even use persecution to grow you more into his image and to display his image through you. Look at how Paul talks about this. This is mind-blowing. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 through 11. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 through 11. Paul says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body of death, of, in the body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are, are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Christian, you're going to be hated, but not crushed, forsaken, or destroyed. You carry Jesus with you and display him even to your persecutors. Even when you're losing here on earth, you and Christ's kingdom are winning eternally. That's what it's saying. Let's keep going. So he's given us an example in Cain and a command to not be surprised. Now, an application. Look at verses 14 and 15. He says, We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. What's John saying? He's saying that love exposes which team you're actually on. If you love the brothers, it's a mark of true conversion. Why do I use the word conversion? Well, because that's what we're actually talking about here. John and the rest of the Bible use the words death and life to describe opposite spiritual domains. The Bible is crystal clear on this. God told Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden that if they disobeyed him, that they would surely die. And they did. 
They took of the fruit and they ate. While God was gracious to them and didn't kill them on the spot, he killed an animal instead in their place. But they did die spiritually. And that spiritual death spread to every human being from that point forward. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says this. It says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Similarly, Ephesians 2 verse 1, it says this. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Do you see this? I love how John Piper so clearly teaches this truth. I've heard him say this multiple times. He says that prior to Jesus saving us, we weren't just in the doghouse. We were in the morgue. That's true. It wasn't as if we were just kind of floating along in the ocean, treading water, and just needing a little bit of help from Jesus. No. We were dead at the bottom of the sea, lifeless and incapable of contributing anything to our salvation. And that's why the rest of Ephesians 2 is such great news for us. Check this out. Uh, Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, after reminding us that before Christ we were dead, it says this. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's what conversion is. Turning from sin and turning to Christ. Trusting that he and he alone can save you and bring you out of spiritual death and into spiritual life. He makes us alive and new. That's what we're talking about here in 1 John when he says that we can know that we've passed out of death and into life. We can know that. Very quickly, I just need to point out a couple of truths that this text teaches us about conversion and about human nature in general. Number one, death is our natural state without Christ. Death is our natural state without Christ. Look what John says. He says, whoever does not love abides or remains in death. Whoever does not love remains in death. He doesn't say you were spiritually alive or even spiritually neutral, but if you don't love, you'll be spiritually dead. That's not what he says. No. He says if you don't love, you remain what you already were, dead. Dead is our natural spiritual state. Two, conversion and regeneration are instantaneous spiritual events. Death to life. Moving from one spiritual realm to the other. It happens in an instant. It's much like a resurrection. No one grows into Christianity. It happens in an instant. Yes, once we're Christians, as we learned the last couple of weeks, once we're Christians, we grow more and more and more into Christ's image. That is sanctification. But 
Conversion happens instantaneously. The moment that you repent and believe, that's justification and regeneration. That's conversion. You're made right with God and new, converted, death to life. So, what's John's big point or application here? How can you know if you're truly converted? How can you know if you're truly converted? By growing up in a Christian family? No. By going to church a lot? No. By helping out in soup kitchens all the time? No. Even though those are good things. How can you know you're converted? John says, do you love the brothers and sisters? John uses the term brothers to mean Christians. Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? And one more time for good measure. Hear this loud and clear. The Bible doesn't teach that loving the brothers is what makes you saved. No, we're only saved by Jesus who sacrificially died in our place. More on that later. But if we're truly saved, if we truly are converted, the fruit that will be on our tree is brotherly love. That's what John's saying. Then the opposite of that is true as well. Verse 15, right? If love is a mark of true conversion, hate is a mark of spiritual death. John wants us this morning to examine our hearts. If you love the brothers, you can have assurance of your salvation. If you hate, you shouldn't have any assurance of salvation. This is John's aim, to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. All right, so point one, a contrast to love. We see an example, a command, and an application. Point two, same thing. An example, a command, and an application. Point two, the cross. Look at verse 16. He says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Who's he? Jesus. Now, we're really getting to the biblical definition of love. Jesus is the ultimate, perfect example of what real love is. I want us to understand this. Jesus' death, it wasn't a tragedy. Look at what Jesus himself says. In John chapter 10, verses 17 through 18, Jesus says this. He says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. Jesus' death on the cross wasn't a tragedy. It was intentional, and it was planned before the foundation of earth. Jesus came as the perfect Lamb of God. He lived perfectly in every single way obeying God's perfect law in every way that none of us have. He unselfishly laid down his life in our place as our substitute, dying the death that each and every one of us deserves. And when we turn from our sin and trust in him, 
we get credited with his righteousness. He takes our death and we get his life. It's the most unselfish act the world has ever known. It's the epitome of true love. And to be 100% clear, his love of us wasn't deserved or earned. No, no, no. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8 tells us this. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. No one, for, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. And that love is defined by the cross. Do you see the contrast between Cain and Christ here? Cain was jealous of his brother. He was concerned about himself. He selfishly acted in his own interest, and he hated Abel, resulting in death. But Christ, in humility, counted others as more significant than himself. He looked not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, humbling himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He laid down his life for us. That's true love. Jesus is our example. Now, a command. If Christ is our example, look at the rest of verse 16. He says, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. Here comes the command. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now, we can't die for one another in a substitutionary, atoning way like Jesus did for us. I can't die for your sins. You can't die for mine. But we can love one another unselfishly and sacrificially. That's John's point. It's so easy to say, I love you. But true love is more than talk. It's sacrificial. It's unselfish. It puts others' interests ahead of your own. It's dying to yourself. Do you, do you love like that? Do you love like that? That's the kind of love that John's calling us to. That's the kind of love that John says is the fruit of Christ inside of us. It's death to self, but in a life-giving way. Wouldn't it be amazing if we as a church were known for this? What if, what if people all over town were saying, you know, I'm not a Christian, but those people are the most loving, sacrificial, unselfish people I know. What if that is what was being said about the church? Jesus is our example, and the command to love is dying to yourself. Now, buckle up. John's about to hit us all right between the eyes. You may 
never have the opportunity to actually physically die for someone or to, to lay your life down for a brother or sister. But you may have that sentiment. I would die for you, you might say. That's great. I hope we all have that sentiment toward one another. But John starts much more simple and much more specific. Before we talk about dying for one another, how about just simply meeting a practical need first? Look at verse 17. He says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? That's great that you would die for me, but how about a sandwich? Do you see what John's saying? He's taking what can be a, a vague concept, love, and he's making it dangerously specific in a way that none of us can escape it. Saying, I love everybody. That's a lot easier than saying, I love Bob, who gets on my nerves, who complains all the time, mistreats me, has no social awareness. Loving humanity, generally, is so much easier than actually loving real people. This is another concrete reason that we believe so strongly in church membership here. Saying, I love Christians, is one thing. But committing to love this particular group of Christians, with names and faces and warts and all, pastor included, that's where the rubber meets the road on our Christianity. John is saying, true love looks like Christ, not like Cain. And it plays itself out most often, not in dramatic ways like dying for someone, but in everyday ways like meeting a practical need. Now, I'll just address it because I know you're all thinking it. Drew, does, does this mean I need to give to everyone? I mean, there are so many people out there who have needs. How would I even begin to, to think about doing that? This issue is complex. But I don't think John's trying to overwhelm us. I think he's trying to get specific. Look again at verse 17. He says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need. First off, to have the world's goods. John uses this word bios, and it means livelihood. Uh, Alan comments here that John does not describe someone here who is rich in this world's goods, but the average ordinary person who has the basics of livelihood at his, at his disposal and could help someone in need. In other words, almost all of us can do something. Second, notice that John says, and sees his brother in need. Sees his brother in need. He's not calling us to end world poverty or even to fix the homeless issue in Santa Cruz necessarily. Notice that he's moved from plural brothers to singular brother here. And he says, if you have the basics of livelihood and you see your brother, 
You see your brother. That word John uses for see isn't talking about a casual glance. It's the word theoreo, theoreo, which we use in our English word theater. It's an active engagement of sight where you're tuned in, you're focusing, where you're, you're carefully aware and you understand the need. What's my point? John is calling us to so much more than just a handout. He's calling us to, to be aware of our brothers and sisters' lives. To really actively be engaged with what's going on and their needs. And then to do what we can to love them. John says, if we do that, if we, if we understand one of our brothers or sisters in Christ's need, and we have the means to help them, and we just slam the door of our hearts shut, he says we have no reason to assume that we love God. Verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. He's saying talk is cheap. Real love expresses itself in deeds. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, says this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. John is making the exact same point here. He's saying, if you claim to have faith, but your heart is closed to helping your brothers and sisters in Christ, your faith isn't faith at all. It's dead. Christians, love one another. Don't be like Cain. Be like Christ. And start by prayerfully looking around you at what practical needs you can meet. God is not asking you to solve world hunger. But I promise you, if you spend time in prayer, with your eyes open around you, he'll show you at least one person you can help. Love one another. What if... What if we prayed and asked God for eyes to see and then just met the need quietly? That'd be a pretty great community to be a part of. And I want you to hear this loud and clear. I believe that you guys are that community. I've seen this time and time and time again. I've seen you guys provide meals for one another. I've seen you do it without getting up on stage and saying, hey, I provided a meal for someone. No, you did it quietly. That's amazing. That is the love of Christ through you. And so this morning, I just want to spur you on to more and more and more of that for God's glory. That's what John is calling us to this morning. Galatians 6, verses 9 through 10. Paul says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then... As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Okay, 
I'm so out of time that I'm going to absolutely fly on this last section. Point three, confidence, verses 19 through 24. If any of you are, are like me, you, you hear John's words and you think, man, I'm not getting it done. I'm not loving like Christ. I'm not practically meeting needs in every way that I could be. And your heart begins to condemn you. How can you call yourself a Christian? Drew, you're really lame. Anyone had their heart condemn them like that? Well, John, who's a great pastor, he wants to circle back and remind us of some truth. He says, God is greater than your heart. And he knows everything. In other words, you're condemning yourself and you don't even know the half of the things you should be condemned for. God knows everything you should be condemned for. And guess what? He doesn't condemn you. Romans 8 verses 1 through 2. This is such good news for the Christian. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. When you, when you really believe that and internalize it, your heart moves from condemning you to having confidence before God. Brothers and sisters, because of Jesus' death on the cross, you can move from condemnation to confidence before a loving father. And look at the result of this in verse 22. He says, And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this isn't the prosperity gospel, by the way. It isn't just name it and claim it. John's point is the same as Jesus's. John 14, verses 13 and 14, Jesus says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Anything we ask within God's will, asking in a way that pleases and glorifies God, whatever you ask within that rubric, you can have confidence that you'll receive. So, pray bold, God-glorifying prayers. That's what he's saying. In closing, look how John wraps all of this up. Verses 23 and 24. He says, And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. To quickly summarize... John is, is giving us his sermon in a sentence with three bullet points. Number one, believe in Jesus. Put your trust in him. That's foundational to being a Christian. Second, love one another as God abides in you and you in God. This is the only way that you'll actually keep God's commandments. Through his strength and his power. Third, God has given us his spirit to empower us and to give us assurance in these things. What an amazing gift. Christians, love one another with the love of Christ. 
I encourage you this morning, don't keep it at a vague level. Don't love humanity. Go and love an actual human with a face and a name this week. That's the fruit of someone who's plugged into God, who's abiding in God. And if you're not a Christian, I'm pretty, pretty sure that I or anyone else in this room would love nothing more than to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus. Following Jesus is the difference, John says, between eternal life and death. And so I encourage you, I implore you, I plead with you this morning. Come to Jesus. Allow him to change you and then to use you to love others as well. That's the message of 1 John. Let's pray.